Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today we have a special guest, Michael Becker. Michael is a principal at SPI Advisory and heads SPI's Dallas, Texas office, where they specialize in repositioning multifamily assets. Prior to forming SPI Advisory, Michael was a 15-year veteran commercial real estate banker and has originated and managed numerous portfolios of permanent bridge loans in all major asset classes. Under Michael's leadership over the past eight years, SPI Advisory has acquired over 10,000 units in the Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin markets. So we're really excited to have you on the show today, Michael. How are you doing? Hey, Eileen. Appreciate you having me on. Doing well. Thank you so much. Um, So I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and um, about your background and how you got started in real estate, if you can please share. Yeah, sure. As you mentioned, I'm based in Dallas, Texas. I grew up here, been here my entire life, and I got into the, uh, the business by being a commercial real estate lender. I was loaning money to other people and kind of through that process realized I was on the wrong side of all those deals. Kind of better to be the, the borrower versus a lender. As you said in my bio, I had uh, quite a bit of experience loaning in all the major income producing commercial real estate asset classes. And then the last five or six years of my banking career, all I did exclusively was value add multifamily lending. A lot of the stuff kind of coming out of the Great Recession, I made a, a kind of built a program out for Wells Fargo, which is where my last stop was. And we just did, you know, loan after loan, fixing these broken deals and kind of put them together. And, um, you know, then then realized that wasn't uh, going to, I was making a good income, but all my clients were getting rich. So then transitioned into real estate ownership about a decade ago, sort of buying some smaller single family stuff, kind of my own money, then realized that wasn't very scalable and kind of reflected what I did all day, every day at work, which was multifamily lending. So transitioned eight years ago, first apartment deal was a 120 unit deal uh, in Garland, Texas, which is like suburban Dallas and 10,000 or so units later here, here we sit talking. Uh, it's been a good run. Wow. Yes. You have such a really fantastic background and you've been able to acquire so many units and become so successful in this business space. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, from that 120 unit that you did from your first um, multifamily deal and to where you are today, how did you get to this point and like kind of what were the challenges that you faced throughout your journey? You know, I had a a lot of resources at my disposal, you know, had a little bit of money just from, you know, being a relatively high income earner and live below my means and save some money up. And then I generated some capital when I started doing the the single family stuff because, you know, you could turn a dollar into four dollars pretty easily back then when you're buying these, you know, foreclosures. So I did that. And then I had a lot of knowledge and a lot of relationships just for my day job. What my challenge was, was taking the perception of Michael Becker in the marketplace and taking it from being a, a lender into being a, a principal of real estate sponsor, right? And I found that's relatively easy. All you got to do is do one deal. Then everyone thinks of you as that. And so I kind of say that half kidding because that's, you know, going from zero to one is pretty hard as a, a mental thing, trying to get, get yourself comfortable going and taking that risk and doing the larger deal, finding the capital. How, how are you going to go find, you know, I think the first deal was about a million two in equity. We paid about $3.8 million or $3.9 million, something like that. And like, how are you going to go get that million to you? And how are you going to qualify for that three plus million dollar loan? 
that was that was kind of scary. It's easier said than than done. And so just kind of really went out there and you know met my now business partner when I was working for the bank and he helped us get a single equity partner that really kind of brought a lot of the equity to the table and he had a big enough balance sheet signed on the loan with us. We were able to get the, the debt done, which was kind of what I, my specialty was at the bank. So I kind of understood that part of the business. And then we got a management company to manage it for us and then kind of were off for the races. So it was, you know, easier in certain respects back then from certainly from the standpoint that, you know, we paid 30,000 unit for something that we sold for 55,000 unit three years later that then sold again for 80,000 units, probably worth a hundred thousand unit today. So, you know, the deals were a little bit easier, but it was a lot scarier times back then because we just were kind of coming out of the Great Recession and the prices really haven't moved. And people were kind of fearful that we maybe, you know, have, have risen out. We're going to go right back to where we were. So that was, uh, I don't know if I answered your question. I'm sorry. I just kind of rambled there. But uh, those are some thoughts around kind of that that first deal. Oh, thank you so much. And so, you know, a lot of times when people are scaling to that capacity as you have throughout your career, um, what are some of the ways that you were able to manage all of it and be able to systematize everything to be able to handle that volume of um, transactions? Yeah, that's kind of been the the most challenging part of this whole business really is because I was always a guy that liked to do a lot of deals from my banking background would, you know, do 50 loans a year. So one a week, I was always, always doing a deal. But how do you then manage all the investors and the lenders and the capital projects and you know, all the stuff that just kind of comes with it. And really it's kind of just a little, little bit by bit because, you know, I wasn't born and no one's really born or, or really know how to be a business owner when you're starting into this. That's the kind of stuff you have to learn kind of trial by fire. So we had the transactional part. And then when we started the company, we had uh, my partner, Sean and I, and one employee. And then we hired um, someone to kind of come and help us with operations. So really hired someone to come help like systematized because we're just guys doing deals and we probably had eight or nine properties by the time we really hired our second employee. And then she came in, it's kind of, you know, process by process and kind of broke it down, documented what we did and try to put a process in place and then hired, layered in administrative help. And then we layered analytical help and then we layered in asset management help. So kind of just little pieces over over the years as we're doing more deals. And because when you're starting out, you don't really have any income coming in. So it's hard, you know you do you do a little bit of everything. You do the the ten dollar hour task. You do the ten thousand dollar hour task. And as you get bigger, you're trying to get some of those lesser value tasks off your plate and onto an employee, or maybe hire get some software, some sort of system that you can you know buy off the off the street to kind of systematize it. Like we didn't have an investor database when we started. We use Excel or Google Sheets. And now we have an investor management platform that's pretty robust. That helps a lot with with that. And, you know, like we're doing our K-1s right now. We're doing 1,300 and something K-1s. So that is a real big help when we're doing our tax returns and, and processing all that stuff. So little by little, and, you know, as you get a dollar revenue in, we've been trying to max out with a dollar of overhead. And it's never, it's never perfect. Sometimes we have too many deals and not enough people. And sometimes we have, you know, maybe a little bit more capacity with our people than we do have work for them. And you always kind of going back and forth and it's never quite perfectly in equilibrium. Oh yeah. Thank you for sharing. And as you were talking about, you know, systematizing your different processes and as the deals were coming in and you started to identify all the different pieces that you're able to utilize other team members to help out with, um, what are some ways that you can advise on, you know, utilizing other team members to the best of their ability, like their strengths, and then leveraging their experiences and their strengths in order to be successful as a team. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, when I started out at a, I still do have a business partner. So we found first and foremost, someone that has different but complementary skill sets to what I have. So that's been really helpful. He's a little bit more analytical, lives in a spreadsheet. He's really, you know, savant when it comes to that part of the business where he's not very um, good when you're putting him in front of a bunch of strangers and having to talk to investors and raise capital and, and things along those lines. So we kind of divide and conquer the workload kind of first and foremost, we head up over the different functions of the company. And then, you know, some of the mistakes we made, we've kind of coupled employees that maybe didn't quite work out in long term. Maybe they just weren't the quite the right fit. And, you know, one or two people we kind of hired out of convenience versus maybe really seeking out the the best person. And then that didn't work out from a longevity. And a lot of them have, but a few haven't. So recently we've been employing, like when we go hire some new people, we had to hire a new analyst last year in 2020 because our analysts uh, got another job. And that was one that we kind of shortcutted the process before. So we hired a headhunter and paid a big fee. So it's not cheap. It's like 25, 30% of the, the salary and a fee that you pay to the headhunter. But if you get the right person, then that really kind of helps increase the output of productivity of, of your company. And, you know, that their payroll cost is relatively insignificant compared to the compensation you can make if you do one extra deal a year. I mean, you're talking about pretty large dollars on the ones that were projects we're, we're focusing on today. So it's relatively immaterial to the grand scheme of things. So making sure that we're just trying to really focus on quality and hire people and pay a little bit more for some of the talent and, you know, know that if I got to pay them a dollar in salary, hopefully they'll produce, you know, three, four, five dollars in revenue for me uh, with their efforts. So that's kind of like a mindset shift a little bit. So when you're starting out, you don't have a lot of resources. It's kind of, you're always kind of looking for a way to do it on the cheaper or in a more cost-effective way. And nothing in this world's free. You you pay for it one way or another. You either pay for it with money or you pay for it with lack of productivity or different issues. There's always a trade-off. And you know, usually once you can afford it and you have the mentality, usually money, if you just if any problem you have, you write a check for is probably not really a problem, you know, so you can pay for that to get the output to then grow the company. And that's been more of like a mentality or mindset shift over the last couple of years that I didn't have when I started in the business. That makes sense, especially when you're in different stages of your business, you know, you're going to be needing different team members at, at the different stages. And so, you know, as you're scaling and as you're building up your business, can you provide any um, advice or strategies that you have used in order to, you know, differentiate yourselves against other bidders when you're trying to acquire new properties and scaling up to where you have been today? Yeah, that's the whole topic there around, you know, how do you win deals and how do you uh, get awarded the deal in a very competitive environment that we've been in for the last several years and still are in today, at least in, at least in the Texas markets especially as then as you go up in property size and quality like like we have the competition is a little bit different too versus on a 50 unit deal versus 150 unit versus you know a 300 unit brand new class a deal there's kind of different buyer pools i think they're really the key to the, the whole business and the key to the whole acquisitions and lifeblood is really your relationships with the brokerage community and especially in the markets that you participate in so you know we're really focused eileen we're started in dallas fort worth that's really where we have the majority of our base. That's why I'm physically located. And then about two and a half, three years ago, we started buying in Austin, which is where my business partner, Sean, is based. And we have a physical office in there. So we we focus on the two markets that we're 
physically located in. And so that is, uh, it's a completely unfair business. You know, a lot of this is who you know, what you know, what chips you can trade. Being Living in the market or, or being in the market is certainly an advantage over those that are outside of the market. So with that said, it's not, you know, obviously a lot of people from out of our market uh, that physically live out of our market own in our market. So you can overcome it. But, you know, what it is, is I'm extremely focused on the two markets and we'll probably add a, a third at some point. And I'm not trying to do 20, 30 different markets where a company of our size, that's, I think, the right strategy. So I've seen a lot of people kind of get the focus a little diverted because they're just looking for a good deal. And maybe they're buying a deal in Texas and then the next deal is in Georgia. And then they go buy something in you know Iowa or wherever. There's kind of all over. And then to do this business right, you really got to get deep relationships with these brokers because their job is really um, to think about it. The broker's need to, you know, one, deliver the best economic terms for their client, the seller. So the highest price and best earnest money and shortest closing times and things like that. But two is uh, to assess credibility of the buyer pool. So when they're looking through four or five different competitive offers and they have to pick Michael Becker over the next person, what I need to do is be seen as extremely credible and, and reliable. And if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And that's the relationship that you got to earn over doing transactions in the in the past and well earn that relationship in, in the two markets that we play in. So what I'm trying to do is, you know, continually expand those relationships with the brokers. And I've established that credibility and, and I established that relationship. So I want to monetize that over and over and over again, where if I'm going to go to, say, Denver, where I never owned before, I'm going to be the new guy in town and maybe I've, I've owned 10,000 units in Texas and that that helps, but it, it's not the same as owning one deal in Denver when these people actually know who I am. So I'm going to have to overcome that unfairness and the first time I go into the market. And, and if I just do the one deal in Denver, then it's not really efficient use of my time. And then so I'm looking, you know, so I think a lot of people that go into these smaller kind of secondary markets, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But if there's only so many units in like a market like Topeka, Kansas. So if I'm looking to expand into a market, I want to be able to use that relationship and monetize it and do, you know, many, many deals in that market versus going to a small market where I could buy one deal and then I'm done. I have to go to the next one or the next one. So being a little more smart and efficient with the way you um, approach those relationships and understand that it's about your ability to perform is kind of of utmost importance and protecting your reputation in the marketplace. I think keeping that in mind when you're, when you're looking to, uh, to get into this business will be extremely helpful. And so what are some of the ways that you have found the most effective to be, you know, top of mind with the brokers and building while you're building up these relationships with them while you're trying yep. to break into a market? You know, I think uh, if you're starting out, you just got to get on everyone's list because they all, you know, get on there in their database and they'll send you all their marketed deals. And I think the best thing to do is sign the, the CA, the confidentiality agreement, download the package, underwrite the deal and give them feedback, maybe tour the deal. Because if you go tour the deal, that's a good way to kind of meet them because you'll go tour property for 30 minutes and the broker will be there and that's an opportunity to kind of meet them in, in person. Um, and then as far as like scaling up, I mean, I'm constantly in contact with these brokers, you know, at least on uh try to get in touch with everybody at least once a month, but, you know, usually weekly or multiple times a week, depending on who it is. And like I said, I live in the market that we own the most of our units. So uh, there's probably three locations within Dallas at the you know the, where the brokers are kind of concentrated. There's maybe six or six to eight kind of brokered shops in town that control 90, 95 percent of the business, and you know two or three are within walking distance of my office building. So I'll just like walk to lunch, and I'll just randomly run into one of them walking to lunch, 
And so then we'll get to have a little five minute conversation as we're kind of walking to lunch or I'm become personal friends with a lot of these guys. And back when this was a thing, we'd go to the local bar and go have drinks uh, for happy hour. And when that's a good way to spend some quality time with people. And when you're starting out, maybe you don't have those level of um, connection and relationship with them. But maybe when you're scheduling a tour, maybe be strategic about your when you're doing it, maybe do it at, say, 11 a.m., and then when you're done at 11 a.m., right after that is lunchtime. So maybe you can say, hey, if you don't have anything after this, you want to go grab a bite to eat. And that might be a natural time for you to go spend an hour with them eating lunch and getting to know them a little bit uh, better than you otherwise would. And there's little soft personal skills and those little kind of uh, conversations about non-multifamily really might tip that scale in your favor whenever you're in a competitive situation. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Oh, no, I think that that's wonderful advice. You know, you want to make the relate the connection and the relationship with the brokers, but at the same time, you want to get to know them on a deeper level and not just at the business level. You want to get to know them personally as well and then um, establish that foundation there. So I think that's really important, very valuable. So thank you for sharing. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. So now once you have acquired the property that you're offer has been accepted and now you're going in and you're wanting to execute on your business plan. Can you talk a little bit about what are the first couple of things that you should be focusing on when you're acquiring a new property and going in and wanting to implement your business plan? You know, I mean, obviously every deal is a little bit different. So kind of just making sure you understand the set of facts on the deal. So are you buying something with the strategy of going in, buying it, renovating it and, and raising your rents kind of through a value ask strategy? Or are you buying something that's in pretty good shape and you're just getting what do you think is a good purchase price and get good debt on it and just kind of clip a coupon a yield. So just kind of understanding what the, the business model is. And then, you know, this business is very seasonal from uh, the leasing standpoint where at least in, in most markets and markets I'm in where, you know, as we kind of get into the latter part of the first quarter or kind of all the way through the second quarter, it's kind of the best part of the leasing season, really from that March through, you know, June, maybe 4th of July kind of time period. And then when school goes back in kind of mid-August, and then it's kind of really slow from kind of mid-August through, you know, January again, and that kind of picks back up. So just kind of understanding the seasonality. So if, if I'm going to go in and buy a deal and I'm closing in December and I'm doing a big value add, I think it's a pretty good time seasonally to come in and start getting aggressive and moving my rents and really trying to focus on um, upgrading as many units as quick as possible to capture the seasonality of the leasing demand. But if I'm buying something in like late July, I've kind of already missed the season. So maybe I want to be a little bit more muted and how aggressive I'm going to be for the first, you know, three, four months of, of my ownership. 
and maybe just wait till a calendar turns into the next year to start really kind of ramping up. So I kind of get the seasonality of the leasing demand. Cause if I go in like late August and I start kicking out a bunch of people by raising the rents basically, and then I get 10% of my, my rent roll uh, moves off, moves out in October and there's not much seasonal demand. I'm going to have this elevated vacancy at the least demand period of the entire year. So thinking through seasonality, the business one, and then, you know, hopefully if you're going to do a value add, you budget the money up front and you have the money, the capital set aside either within your loan or, you know, within a, a separate capital account. Well, you don't have to, you know, be reliant of operational cash flow to pay for some of this stuff because it doesn't work very well. So, you know, making sure that you have the money set aside and you have decent bids kind of before you get into the deal and make sure you have a contingency because stuff never goes exactly as you you think it is. And you always, there's always something that you want to do that, you didn't think of uh, prior to, bu- to buying the deal. So making sure you have decent level of contingencies in your in your budget and kind of roll with the punches. And then once you kind of are in the deal you know, after a while, I mean, it's great that you have a pro forma and certainly the guide that you need to kind of look at. But at the end of the day, your, your pro forma doesn't really matter to, to the reality of the sets of facts on the ground. If you think it's going to be one way, but the reality is different, you just need to adjust and, and make the best of the the situation and whatever is kind of thrown at you. Because, you know, one of the things I like to say is every projection, every pro forma I've always done is uh, I've ever done has always been wrong. You know, either you do better or you do worse. You never do exactly what you think you're going to do. So making sure that you um, read the situation, adjust accordingly and make the best decision with a set of facts that are real time, irregardless of what your pro forma said six months or two years before. I think those are, are some things to think about when you're getting into these deals after acquisition. And then so a lot of these things also um, pulling the data points and everything that you're also utilizing your other team members to help you pull the data as well, like your property managers who's um, looking at the business and your business partners as well to kind of evaluate everything on real time basis. Yeah, for sure. You know, on the front end, I'm obviously will uh, pull rent comps and shop the comps and make sure we feel pretty good about our income projections. I obviously have the management company verify they feel comfortable with that at the same time. Lean on the management company. Obviously, we we have a lot of deals at this point, so we have a lot of other historical information to kind of lean upon, especially for like operating expenses. So I know pretty well what these things are going to run. But before we kind of put the final um, seal on the projection, we're going to go to the management company and say, "Hey, I'm budgeting twelve hundred dollars a unit payroll. Is that obtainable? You know, let's talk through how many employees we need to run this, what their salary and total expenses are going to be. Really, kind of get that that buy-in from the management company because then that's what's going to be in our budget and what we're going to kind of benchmark off and manage going forward. And then on an ongoing basis, the management company is really kind of responsible for the day-to-day running of the deal. And then we have an asset manager that helps kind of set rents and keeps them accountable and things along those lines, both on the income and the expense line items and I uh, really kind of monitor it. So what I do on a day-to-day isn't isn't like so granular anymore. It used to be and then now we're kind of above that and really rely on a lot of the team members to kind of do the, the, the day-to-day, which honestly they do a better job than I ever could have because I was a banker. I wasn't, you know, an operations person. So having the, the right professional in place to kind of oversee it makes everything go a, a little bit better. So Michael, with everything that's going on, you know, with the eviction moratorium and with COVID and everything like that, can you provide a little bit about what you think, in your opinion, you know, the multifamily outlook is going to be like and in real estate in general? You know, I think a lot of that, Eileen, is really kind of dependent on what your view and where you sit is. So um, I'm talking to you from my office in Dallas, Texas, and you're in Southern California. 
And I think your world is completely different than my world, especially if you own real estate in your backyard, which I don't know if you do or you don't. But if you owned an apartment building in Los Angeles, you're going to have a completely different set of challenges than, than what I have in Dallas right now, where we obviously have been impacted over the last, you know, basically almost a year now when the eviction moratorium started kind of kicking in. And we have some people, certainly a handful of people that have been there for many, many months that haven't paid rent, you know, on various, various properties because we have so many properties, so it's bound to happen. But on a percentage basis, this really hasn't been that bad, right? It really, it really has, it hasn't had a material impact to the bottom line at the end of the day. And a lot of our loans that we put on them have been adjustable rate mortgages over the last few years after the early part of my career doing a lot of fixed rate mortgages and getting stuck with a bunch of large prepay penalties, which is a completely different topic than what you just asked me about. We decided to do a lot of adjustable rate mortgages over the last three years. And those, if you remember about a year ago, the interest rates started dropping dramatically. So honestly, our, our, when our, so our debt service is down, so we're actually probably making as much or more money today than we ever have as a function of even if we have a higher delinquency and our, and our collections aren't quite as uh, strong, they're still pretty strong, And but our debt service is down. So um I mean, at some point, gravity is going to have to set in, I think, a, a little bit more than it has. And you can kind of hear about San Francisco. I don't know as much about L.A. We hear about San Francisco having you know, 25% rent negative lease trade outs, you know, lease over lease and having, you know, really elevated delinquency because you can't evict anybody. And the people is kind of in society out there tend to take advantage of that a little bit more than maybe they would in Texas. And Texas, we still do have evictions going on. I know there's a, the national eviction moratorium and if a resident files a CDC declaration, you can't evict them, but you can still file. The courts are open for the most part. You can still file an eviction. If they don't show up, you get a default judgment and the constable will come take their stuff and put it on the curb. So like, you know, there's still evictions or people are skipping. So it's still been relatively manageable. So I don't know the, the ultimate outcome. I know that in December, the uh, the recent stimulus bill had $25 billion in rental assistance. Uh, and that's about to start rolling out because I went from the national government to the state to the local housing authorities. And what we're thinking is going to happen is, is they're going to go back upwards of 12 months in delinquent rents and three months forward and current rents. And I'm sure every state and every little location will be a little bit different with the rules. But if they're going to go pay these handful of people that haven't been paying me for however many months and give me, you know, several, a, a large check for all my back rent and then pay for three months forward, that's going to be money that we kind of mentally have written off because as, as uncollectible, that's going to be like a big windfall for us. So that would really be extremely helpful. So if that happens in some of these markets, that, that might be a big windfall at the end of the day. But I think, um, Markets like the California markets are going to, especially like LA proper and San Francisco and the, and the so-called Valley General, are going to have a lot more lasting impacts from capital being less less willing to go to it as it's been so such a magnet for so many years for capital. I think capital is kind of thinking differently about where it's putting its money and it's kind of looking over the coastal and gateway markets and coming to markets like Arizona, Florida, Texas, the Carolinas, Georgia, places like that, that tend to be seem to be a little bit more stable. So I think uh, the outlook from where I sit is extremely rosy. I mean, there's a ton of investment demand. We're maintaining our operations pretty well. We're collecting our money nearly as well as we historically have. So I see a lot of, a lot of tailwinds with what I do, and that might be different from what you see back at home. No, thank you for sharing. I would totally agree. You know, it's all dependent on the market, um, market specific areas and, and where you are in the country, because every every market is a little bit different. And so, Michael, um, what's next for you? 
uh more i think uh we're gonna keep keep going i uh we're you know ever ever growing we're just finishing up a new equity raise on two property portfolio as we we talked today so kind of kind of more of the same i think we want to get into a third market we're going to look at san antonio for a couple of years so that might be a reasonable time to enter that market which is about hour and a half south of austin and then we're we're not going to go to houston just for various reasons so we'd have to kind of go out of state after that so i'm trying to figure out what is that what does that look like? We're in the process of kind of, well, I just about to sign a new office lease to expand my space and hire some more people. So we're actually, you know, growing, which is I think good thing that we're bullish about the future and trying to take on some additional overhead to, to kind of grow because we think we have the ability to do so. And we're bullish about all the investments that we have and the markets that we play in. So excited about it. I think we got at least another decade or, or more of a really good run at Dallas-Fort Worth and the awesome markets that I play in. We have seen a lot of a lot of major corporate relocations come here and have for many years and our population base is growing and you know prices seemingly keep going up and up and up and, and interest rates are low. And so it's been a really good investment market for, for many years. And I think the future is really bright. So just kind of kind of more of uh, what we've been doing is really kind of the future. Oh, thank you so much for sharing, Michael. And so how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? Uh, many, many, many ways. I guess it's been, you know, I can't believe it's been like eight years since I left the bank and kind of went on my own. It's been, seems like, uh, you know, really short period of time in some respects and it feels like forever in others. So it's been, you know, the ability to obviously earn a much better living uh, in the grand scheme of things. And you ever could just be an employee. So that's kind of one aspect of it. But then it's a lot more fulfilling from a work standpoint versus going to the going to the bank and working for somebody else and having to go to a bunch of crappy meetings I didn't want to go to and do this or do that. You know, I'm not saying I don't have a lot of stuff. I do a lot of stuff I don't like uh, from a day-to-day standpoint now, but I'm you know actively working on getting those responsibilities off me and on to another team member, even if I'm responsible for everything at the end of the day. So that's been that's been kind of interesting to grow it. And it's pretty flexible business, as we all saw, being able to go work from our houses for three months uh, as, as we're just locked down. At least that's what, what it was for me. And for kind of from March to about June, when I went back to the office, I started coming in every day and, and you know, kind of getting back to life. So it's really flexible. And before that, you can go uh, try to go to Hawaii for a couple of weeks every summer and get out of the heat. Uh, the Texas heat. So you can work from Hawaii in the morning and then go have your whole day to go do whatever. So it's really flexible and allows for you to kind of go and see and experience a lot of stuff. And so it's been a, it's been a really uh, rewarding, fulfilling uh, career change for me, for sure. And what is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? You know, I mean, I think a lot of it is, especially when you're starting out, a lot of you don't know what you don't know. So a lot of it's really about how do you do this type of stuff and what's the real technical and specific and you're trying to learn, you know, NOI divided by cap rate equals value and how do you analyze this deal and you know all sorts of like really granular type of stuff. And at the end of the day, the most successful guys I've seen in this business, guys and gals in this business are really focused on more on the relationships and with, with people than they are the the blocking and tackling of how do you, you know, do one of these deals and all that stuff's important. So I mean don't get me wrong, but you know, at the end of the day, if you have access to a relationship and you get that deal that the next person can, or you can raise that capital that the next person can't, or you get access to a better, better loan product just because you have a little bit of scale and track record and the lender will be a little bit more favorable. And the terms are going to give you versus the next person, that makes this business a, a lot easier. So I'd focus a little bit more on 
the relationships out of the gate. I guess I always kind of had them, but it really was kind of accidental. It wasn't really intentional, just kind of by being being in the business as a lender. So once I kind of made that a lot more intentional and really trying to grow and expand these relationships, it really kind of took my company and really uh, the trajectory of it just took off. Once we started focusing a little bit more on the the relationship than than the, the kind of the technical part of the business, yeah, and I would agree. You know, the relationship part of it is, you know, a lot of the real estate stuff is is fun, the technical side of things, but at the same time, it's even more fun building these relationships and building not just relationships, but meaningful relationships with the people that we're working with, um, that we choose to work with in the in this business. Yeah, for sure, and that's that's how you. At the end of the day, you know, as a real estate sponsor, a syndicator, you've got a lot of responsibilities, but the way you make money is really two things. You gotta gotta find deals and gotta find capital. So you gotta gotta source deals from the brokers and you gotta find investors to give, to give you cap you know, capital to, to raise the deals. And everything else is sort of noise. You know, it's all important. You gotta buy right, you gotta analyze it, you gotta asset manage it, you gotta do all those things right. But that's how you get paid. You got to find deals and find money. So if I'm not spending my time and effort towards one of those two activities, it's usually um, not the highest and best use of my time. So I'm trying to get these other activities off of me onto somebody else. So if you just kind of keep that as kind of your compass and that's your your northern way to go on your on your compass, I think that is probably serve you well as you try to look in to get this business and, and scale it up. Thank you. And what tools or techniques have you used to improve the efficiency of your business or your personal life? Um, you know, I think one of the best things I do is I can't remember where I heard this, but someone told me like a productivity hack is if there's a task that's on my plate that's going to take me less than two minutes, you should stop whatever you're doing and do it right then for two minutes and it's kind of move on with your life. If it's going to take you, you know, longer than that or, you know, some period of time. It's okay to go ahead and, and schedule it, write it down and schedule it for some future point in time. Make sure that uh, obviously it's a task that's going to drive your business forward and prioritize it. But if it's something really simple, just do it right then and there. So you don't have to like say, I'll do that at some future point. And you forget about it. And you got to have all this brain power to remember to do it and actually take that two minutes, you know, a week later to, to do. So that's been really helpful. And then I've been trying to be really um, particular about managing what gets on my calendar and what's in my schedule. A lot of people, um, especially as you become more successful, a lot of people are kind of want a piece of you and they want a piece of your time and they want to sell you whatever product or service or ask you whatever advice or, you know, wh whatever it is. And it's great to be helpful. And when you don't have as much on your plate, that's, that's fine. But, uh, you know, if someone steals 15 minutes here, 10 minutes there, that kind of adds up throughout the day, especially if you're focused on something and then they divert your focus and you got to think about something else and try to get your focus back. It really can mess up your productivity. So I'm trying to be really um, very, very critical about what I spend my time on, what I, what I kind of allow into my life. And I say no to a lot more things than I used to. And when people, it sounds bad, but a lot of people kind of cold call me or reach out on, you know, sell me whatever product or service that in the apartment business. You know, a lot of times I just don't even respond. So I'll kind of ghost them a little bit, which sounds bad, but I used to always respond to everybody. And then I would get that kind of the salesman technique of trying to overcome my objection to whatever product they want to sell me. And they'll reach out to me three or four more times after that. So it's been it's been kind of um, interesting to make sure that you stay disciplined and set stuff up. And when you're starting the business out, you know, one of the mistakes I made, I put my cell phone out of a couple of different places. So I'll get all these random phone calls from people trying to sell me stuff now that have my phone number and whatever database. And so if I don't recognize your number, I, I never, ever answered. I let it go to voicemail. Then I'll decide if I want to call you back or don't call you back. And just because someone else has an agenda for what they want with my time doesn't mean it matches what I want to do. So I just try to guard my, my calendar very, very strictly. 
Oh, thank you so much for sharing, Michael. And really appreciate you having you come on the show today. Yep. And if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go? Yeah, I'll give you two resources. Really, the, the newest thing I'm kind of most excited about is I started a new show. It's called the Multifamily Investing Show with Michael Becker. You can find that on YouTube or, or iTunes, really probably anywhere here by voice. Or you can go to our website, which is uh, just simply www.multifamilyinvestingshow.com. There, there's a contact us form. You fill that out. And I'm always happy to uh, send out some some information about kind of working with us. Or the, the other resource really is... Um, uh, my company's SPI Advisory, so that's our website. It's just spiadvisory.com. It's spiadvisory.com. There's also a contact form uh, on that webpage as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Michael. I really appreciate everything that you shared about your journey and you know multifamily and everything that you shared today. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.